yeah, there's there's a couple articles in music psychology where they look at they look at the behavior of babies to um, find out how bored or engaged they are by like looking at their eyes and like where they're looking. If they're looking at a speaker, then they're really engaged in the speaker. That means they're really interested in it. But if they kind of look away and start like you know doing something else with their eyes, because obviously babies can't talk, um, that means that they're not interested. And um, so they were studying these babies with respect to rhythms in five and seven, and mm. then in four, four, obviously four and three. And then they tested like American babies and American adults and Bulgarian adult or Balkan people from the Balkan countries, adults also. So adults and babies in both cultures and found that like, it was easier for the babies in these Balkan countries to process these more mixed, these mixed meters, these, you know, sort of yeah. in five and seven, they were having an easier time than like American adults. And obviously, Actually, American adults had the hardest time, I'm pretty sure. Mm. Like Amer- American babies weren't having that hard of a time because they haven't been taught their whole lives that 4-4 four, four, and 3-4 are like the most popular meters in their culture, you know. Exactly. <laughs> so anyway, all of this to say um, that I, I believe that teaching music by ear is the best way to go about it because then everyone's free to sort of figure it out on their own exactly but for, for me i'd rather just you know write everything in four four to some degree but i have in the past written things um in meters where the music doesn't belong like the the music sounds like it's in this meter and i'll write it in another meter intentionally and then i stopped doing that <laughs> i stopped doing that how well did <laughs> I that feel go like some in people, rehearsals yeah, some people were like really pissed and or just like, what are you hearing? And I'm like, yeah, I actually do feel this in five or I can feel this in five. And then they're like, I don't feel that at all. And so then I was yeah. like, well, maybe I should spend a little bit more time reflecting upon what the the common aesthetic would be. Like, how would the most common person feel this, you know, and gravitating towards that? Yeah, we have to have the practical aspect also yeah. in place because sometimes, as I've seen you, uh, you know, of, of course, I've been listening to your records, but I'm also checking you out on YouTube and there's lots of gigs on on YouTube, full gigs where you play with different bands. Some people are the same, but, you know, and I know how it is that people are reading, you know, and sometimes there's little amount of, of time for, for rehearsal. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So we have to have music in a way presentable that people could even looked at it and you know uh where there's like bad lighting or you know the music falls down and it still needs to be uh readable to some degree you know yeah absolutely but i That's feel you you know this the this thing of um if we just learn music through our ear it's not informed so much um or it has the that that uh naivete a little bit and that that uh, childlike thing of just yeah. hearing and just taking it in you know yeah. mm -hmm. and once i had um students of mine transcribe a solo of of lee konitz and i could see who was actively writing everything down and trying to make sense of everything in a rhythmical fashion like this is more or less an eighth note this is more or less uh you know eighth note triplet or whatever whatever And there was one guy who came as close as nobody came from out of my, my students. All of them had to learn the same solo by, by Lee. Mm. And um, one of them was super close. 
like like incredibly close um, rhythmically. Uh, and I asked him and he was like, yeah, it's just try to play everything in the moment where Lee plays it, like very basic information. It's like, mm. yeah, try to play the note exactly in the same moment where he plays it. And that goes beyond eighth notes or 16th notes sometimes because Lee's sound and everything is so fluid, you know. Of course, he's, he's incredibly... A rhythmical player but still music is more than just eighth notes or you know and if we take it through our ears it gets more into that childlike approach of just hearing it where it is and then imitating it absolutely yeah i couldn't agree more honestly it is like this very playful innocence and almost it's it just doesn't make sense at yeah. all and that's just like the that's the most beautiful music that i can possibly imagine or even recent yeah recently i was playing this show with yuhan su who's a really amazing vibraphone player and mm -hmm. she wrote this she wrote this rhythm um the rhythm is like okay that's the rhythm but she wrote it like one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, like da, dun, da, dun, da, dun, da, dun, da, dun, da, like that. But I hear it like one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, like that. So it's just interesting. Like she wrote three, four, five, eight, like that. And so I just don't look, and I love her, and I think that's how she feels it and that's totally how she feels it and but i feel it this other way so i just don't look at it anymore yes <laughs> i'm just trying i just want to i just want to get to the point where i just don't even look at the thing anymore because it's just it just gets in the way again yes. yeah it gets yes. in the way of me being like oh this is how everyone's sort of playfully feeling this rhythm together in the band and I can't really, and looking at it makes me feel like I'm overanalyzing it in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then as soon as you do that, it's like, then it's all gone. It's it's done. <laughs> then you, you stop ever, listening. You stop yeah, listening. Exactly. Yeah. Have you ever written your own sheets for somebody else's music after seeing their charts? Wow, that's a great idea. <laughs> no, I haven't done it. I, I haven't done I it, but do I've it had sometimes. people. Okay. Yeah, I've had people do that with my music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah i think i think one a couple times well i think also for ease of like with julian shore the piano player who plays in portals he had been like i want to rewrite this because it's easier for me to see this part in bass clef and it's easier for me to see this part mm, in treble yeah. clef and so could you just send me this sibelius file and then then he would send send it to me i'm like oh okay i see and i'm trying and i would try to learn from that so the next time i write something for him or anyone else who plays piano, then I'll be like, okay, this is, this is better. <laughs> this is yeah. like easier, even though you, know, you can be really stubborn about it and just be like, well, just deal with my <laughs> music the way I wrote it. <laughs> or yeah. you could be like, let me adjust myself to make this easier. Like you said, let me make this music really easy to read because it's going to be dark in the club and it's going to, the music is going to fall off the stand. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but it's so useful to get feedback like that from somebody you work with, right? Yes. Yeah, it's really helpful. I really love when I get that kind of stuff because it makes me really grow. Mm. Did the charts, also the charts, did you change them actively also after that or just for the next song that you write? 
I did change them after that because mm -hmm. if if there would ever need to be a sub in the band, then I'm sure right. they would appreciate it too. I'm sure they would appreciate mm. more clarity. Mm. Yeah, I recently saw this hilarious tweet the other day where it was a composer who I follow said, "If I can tell how good of a musician you are by your charts." Interesting. <laughs> I was like, okay. There are all these comments and everything. Yeah, like people but... people posting their charts like, okay, tell me how good I am. <laughs> like, and then he was going through and analyzing, you know, well, this is... <laughs> have you seen Kenny Reader's charts? No, I haven't. Oh, maybe I have. Are they written by hand, right? Yes, and they're a mess. <laughs> and his music doesn't sound like that at all. And he's an amazing yeah. musician. Of course, he there's is. always like a counter argument for for a theory like that yeah right or or like all the paul motion songs those are written by hand too yeah but those, those look great those are, they do look great they're they are very but in there most of them are very like one page yes you know? yeah. yes but landing is landing one page or like no i wrote it all out because of the way that I could, I've, I have a couple of versions. So one version where I wrote out the whole drum pattern for the whole piece. And so that one's like uh, four pages. Okay. Yeah. So it can, it shows you because some people I play with, they like to see that, like how it lines up with the drums, like every time they want to see everything you know, mm -hmm. written out. So I adjusted for that, but there's also a version that's one page that it's just, yeah, I was thinking just about play that. this rhythm. <laughs> yeah. So, mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, today I learned loss from you, the, the song. Oh, cool. Thank you. That's, yeah, an old it's one. It's a really great song. Thanks. Yeah, I really like that one too. Um, yeah, tell me a little bit about the history of that song. I wrote that song when I moved to New York and I really, it was in a, a very emotional state because I had moved from Chicago and some of the projects that I was in and trying to keep going, um, it seemed like they were coming to an end <laughs> because of just like, it's so hard when you live in different places to make, continue things going. And so I, that was sort of, I just sat down and I had these um, chords in mind and this like moving bass line that you know i had that in my mind and how to connect it um and yeah it just it came it just came out strangely all in one sitting which i've been trying to do a lot of lately just try to get everything out in just one sitting yeah i took this songwriting class from david longstreth who is oh yeah i love him yeah okay yeah and yeah he did a, a songwriting workshop in 2021 that I took. How was it? And it was really good. Was I wanted really to take good. part, but I couldn't. So I'm interested yeah. in what happens there. Yeah, I hope he does it again because he has a very, very strong curriculum. And he one of his tenets is to write down this whole song in one sitting. Like, don't, because yeah. you'll never be in that mental state ever again. And that, that's true. That is true. So he's just like, finish it, <laughs> finish the song. Um, I mean, he's, you know, obviously there's situations where you can't do that. 
And, but, but the seeds of the song, if you can get it all out when you're in that state of being, then it'll be more clear later on, mm-hmm. yeah. I think. Or that's, that's what I learned from him, even in the instance of like writing lyrics and, and song, writing a song, you know, <laughs> with lyrics and everything else. Yeah. What kind of uh, other advice did he give that really resonated with you? Um, one other piece that, that really resonated is don't go too far with all the aspects of the project. I think mm. like over mixing or over mastering or over producing. And that really, that was really strong for me. Um, also, I mean, this is, this is something that um, I think I've learned from a lot of different people, but just getting ideas out without, you know, editing or judging. Yeah. That, that had been really, and if you can't get anything out, then take an element from a song that you love and put it into a different element. So for example, if you, let's say you really like the harmonic movement of a Bob Dylan song, then you, you know, you take that, those chords, you know, one, six, four or five or something, and then you could turn it into a rhythm, you know, or you can turn it, mm. you can put it in the snare drum where you could like turn those values like one and six and four and five into dots on MIDI, um, you know, because MIDI is like binary, I guess sometimes. And so you can put that in that pattern in the snare drum and see what happens when you do something like that. Right. So your creative process gets fueled by something that you love and thereby you're connected to uh, your original love for music, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. I, I had recently seen um, Taishan Sori performance here in New York and I, and it was for Rothko. I think that's what the name of the pieces. Um, and, but he had, Instead, I feel like on the original performance, it's a soprano singing. And for his performance, he had a baritone. And mm -hmm. he also, um, there was there were other elements of the piece that were the same. But there were also dancers in this performance. And there were, um, there was a celeste and piano. And I'm pretty sure that's the same as the original. And, and a viola, which is, I believe, the same as the original. But there were other elements, like he had written this piece in dedication to this other piece that he loved. And um change just very small elements about about it like you don't have to be some mastermind you yeah. know i mean in order to make something happen that's beautiful yeah i feel like people always i think that's why people get stuck is because they're like well it has to be this masterpiece and then then you don't do anything exactly <laughs> yeah, yeah. isn't there a morton feldman piece with the name rothko chapel or something is that yeah that yeah that's the piece it's rothko chapel and it's ba yeah it's based on the um, oh cool wow I based on that, that morton feldman piece yeah exactly oh. and and like i said it was really compelling because this low baritone voice is in replace of the original which i believe is a mezzo soprano mm -hmm. um, in, the, in the original piece and and so just it was just great to to hear and see him do something that was like almost the same instrumentation, but very, the slightly different in, in these certain ways. And obviously like very Morton Feldman, -y, you know, mm -hmm. this might be a weird question, but if you play with somebody like Taishan, 
who is an incredible com composer, incredible player, and does so many. And I want to later connect this back to you, but um, who does so many different things. If you ask him just to play tunes at smalls, just to play tunes, which is, of course, an art form in itself, does the thought of all the other stuff that he's involved with somehow cross your mind when you play with him? Of course. I mean, of course. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he, it's all in there, I would say. And I find, I find that, you know, not to just like bring it back to my own ego, but <laughs> I find myself involved, involved and interested in like a lot of different. Yeah. That's what um, I'm kind of to music. Get yeah. Like I, you know, this in January, like I, I did this really wonderful performance with a songwriter here named Jean Rowe, who um, wrote a series of pieces about this bus route in New Jersey um, and connected it also to the passing of her father. Anyway, I was playing saxophone and flute and also synthesizer and also like effects with my saxophone and I was singing. And that was all songs you know, songwriter <laughs> songs. And then like the previous day I played with Lex Corton, who's a really mm. amazing young pianist here in town. And then I later that, that month I was doing this thing with John Zorn, who he organized this event with all these really wonderful improvisers where there was no music and we were improvising all together in various, you know, concoctions. And just, I find myself really interested in those things and it all influences the way that I'm going to play over a standard or over a piece of music that's more standard repertoire. And I feel like it probably does the same for him or all the people on that gig for that matter. Yeah. Chris Tordini, who plays with mm -hmm. Becca Stevens and that yeah, project. Yeah. And Matt Mitchell, who's played in like a number of different kinds of projects, including his own with these piano etudes, but then... Um, he's, I saw him play a gig with, or sit in with Ryan Power, who's an incredible singer songwriter and, you know, musician, overall musician who lives here now, but from, you know, who had been living in Vermont for a long time. And so I, f I feel like all of them, that's what I'm going, that's what I would love to keep on doing, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I asked that because, um, maybe, you know, these situations when, You play with somebody who's very associated with some kind of certain way of playing or a certain kind of music and you ask him to do something else or her and what sometimes can get into the heads of people maybe maybe if they ask even if if they ask you yeah but maybe she wants to play that all that other kind of stuff that i know she's doing all the time mm. she likes to do that mm -hmm. better you know she likes to do that more than what we're doing here today. Do you know these kind of situations, these moments? That's wh why I was asking, you know? Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like those responses come from, or those typecasting responses come from fear of yeah. the unknown. You know, that I feel like they come from the fear of the unknown or fear of um, failing <laughs> at something that maybe, you know, you aren't um that you haven't taken time to really like check out which I, i totally get i mean there's people obviously who sort of stay in their lane yeah. of traffic but <laughs> i like to i like to cross the lanes because it's just there's so much out there and we only really have one life to live and mm. you know 
it's I feel so instructive to be inside of something that's new every day you know something that can challenge us every day and then you can take those elements into the other performance situations you know totally yeah and I think that's that that's what what comes across when I listen to your music like that variety and that openness you know it transports and it is evident in everything that you that I've heard you do you know thank you um we were talking about that move from Chicago to New York and leaving a lot of projects um behind we as musicians we we often have this or sometimes in our lives we have these moments where we're maybe about to leave to you know leave a town go to to live somewhere else you know what kind of advice do you have for people in that situation um that's a great question <laughs> i feel like there's a good amount of of you know holding on to the uh, holding on to certain projects and i think that's such a beautiful thing about moving places i do have projects from chicago that are still living and have taken hiatuses and come back um but then i've definitely had the other side of it where like okay this is the end of this chapter and moving on and i feel like there's merit in both of those kinds of ways of being of like you know seeing it through and keeping in touch with people you've been making music with for like 30 years or 50 mm-hmm. years. I think um, that's really special and there's nothing to replace that. You know, you can't just hire some, some random person you've never met and be like, expect that kind of relationship to just yeah. transpire over overnight. So I feel like there's a lot of merit to sticking with your, um, you know, people you've been playing with your whole lives. That's, so cool and irreplaceable um i think there's also you know ways to manage it in a proper way so that you can you know get stuff done or like move move so you could be like okay when (laughs) more strategically i guess when are we all free okay we're saving the month of march for this project where everyone's gonna get together again and re recap what we all want to do with the project and see where we want to go with it. I think Mm. those, those aspects of keeping in touch and, uh, but being sort of uh, being honest about what is possible, you know? Yeah. Those are important things to do. Um, About uh, loss again, you know, you said, and I, that was something that when I, when I, uh, transcribed the piece I, w- I was like you you described that you wrote it in in one sitting you know and that was because it's it seems so round rounded well rounded and um like of one thought um that i was suspect- suspecting that um this this is what happened how do you balance that out with or how do you find out what each piece wants to be because not every piece is like this one that you've written you know not it's not every piece is that because there are more broader pieces more diverse pieces where different things are happening um how do you find out what what each piece wants to be yeah i think 
for I, I think that for some of the ideas that's for me some of the ideas that seem more complex need more time to marinate and to see sort of what they need like I was really grappling with a couple pieces for this this project that I just recorded in December which is really essentially the second portals album but with the same core band but with both some vocalists as guests oh and who, I was really sort of, yeah it's the same band from the first portals record yeah. with Julian Julian Shore and Marquise Hill and Chris Tordini and Alan Menard yeah. and then the vocalists on that record and then also Nicole Mitchell is a guest she plays flute and she's on this record on a few tracks and then the vocalists on the record are um, Julia Easterlin and Alexa Barcini and Jen Shu and Napa Alexa Nina. I think I know Alexa. Sorry for interrupting. <laughs> no, yeah, no, no, that's, yeah, no, that's great. She, I've known Alexa for a really long time through the Litchfield Jazz Camp that we had both uh, gone to and I was teaching at and um, I've done a couple of gigs with her and really liked w the way she was singing this one song. And so I had her, and then also the last person, I'm not sure if you caught that, but Na Nappy Nina, she's a really no, wonderful uh, rapper who's from Oakland. And I had her on a couple, so, but no, I was, I guess I was saying I, there were a couple of pieces on that record where I was really struggling, like, where does this go? And for, for a little bit, I was just playing it in its sort of rough state. Like I played one of those pieces at Smalls with that band with Matt Mitchell and Chris Tordini and Taishan Sori and in its sort of unfinished state. And I was like, it really needs something else. And then I finished and then I finished it, but it took like six months. It was really like, long and drawn out and I kept trying these certain things and nothing was really working and finally this other thing you know sort of came to me at the end of <laughs> me needing to finish it for the recording session really like that's really <laughs> yeah <laughs> what happened but um but I don't know I feel like each piece is, is a, each piece is a snowflake they're all different you know <laughs> and they all you know they're all just like what do you need and sometimes you just you have to talk to the music and you gotta you know, ask it what it needs. Um, but yeah, some of the other ones just come right out. It's fun. I'm sure you feel that way too. You know, when you're writing some, some pieces are really easy. Just here it is. Yes. And this is how I'm feeling. And this is coming out really easy. And then the other ones are really a struggle. And sometimes you put them away for a while and then someday you look at, you look at the idea again and something clicks and you, I can't explain it, but honestly, the, the mystery of it is really exciting to me. And that's what kind of yes. takes me back to coming back to keep writing more and more, you know, stuff because yeah. it's not so easy to strategically understand the process. You know, there's a bit of magic in it. Absolutely. I've uh, have had a couple of uh, moments where I was so fed up with trying to finish one song that I was so angry that I started writing another song, finished that, and then got back to the other and finished it, you know? So it took me yeah. to look another way, you know, it was important for me to look, look another way and focus on something else for a while, just get that done and then get back to the other thing that was more yeah. maybe heady even, because sometimes the more heady pieces, I'm not trying to put them down, but those songs where which maybe more more thought or or intellectual activities are involved 
they take a longer time than just the ones that just where you follow your inspiration and they just you kind of have to uh keep keep on writing writing everything down so you you don't lose the thread that started it all you know absolutely yeah definitely absolutely mm -hmm. and so I'm, de I'm i'm definitely a fond sorry i was definitely fond of um of editing I'm so fond of it i love it Mm, it, yeah. it changes everything and allows something I know I've I've go through many iterations of pieces versions of pieces and I know a lot of people do that here yeah who I've spoken with I was talking to Sara Serpa about that she goes through a lot of editing I was playing with her last year in October I believe and in on the top of her charts she writes like version whatever you know like this is the title and then That's underneath good. version version four like some of them said you know version four or five or some of them were like version two but it's so cool to ask you like what was like version one like yeah <laughs> you know and then she'll say oh i took this part out or i like made this part better put these chords in here yeah i've heard uh, carla blaze say about composition like nothing ever works twice Mm. What do you think about that? Mm -hmm. Nothing ever works twice. Like you can't recycle your ideas. Is that the? It's like maybe one uh, one kind of process for a piece doesn't is not really applicable mm. to some other kind of idea. Mm. I mean, I agree with that. I am like that because if you use the same process, it's just going to all sound the same. You know. Mm -hmm. So, and her music is definitely not all the same. <laughs> it's no. so, you know, she's like reaching and that's definitely an element. I mean, some people are trying to write music that, that all does sound the same. And I, I, there's a respectable element about music that I like that about, like you go and you listen to this artist and you know what you're going to get, you know, mm -hmm. you know you're going to get this thing. And that's respectful because it's like, wow, how many times can you, you've done it this like 12 different ways on this album and everything sort of sounds the same way. And that's really hard too to do. It's really mm -hmm. hard in yeah. a certain way. Um, but yeah, I feel like there's, there's good ways to, to do both of those things. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit how it was for you to play on that Lee Konitz album and what, yeah i mean what that experience was like well yeah you're living in the city that he was living in so that's kind of exciting yes <laughs> i know he, he he did talk a lot about that and i feel like he met his wife there if i wasn't mistaken mm -hmm. gundala yep <laughs> yeah he what a funny what a funny guy i mean i really you know i wasn't like ex extremely close to him but i did go to his house probably went to his house like I don't know seven times or something not that much not as much as some people but he's just what a funny guy it was really a true honor to play on an album with my like an idol someone who I you know transcribed many solos of and tried to sound like and <laughs> <laughs> just completely listened to thousands of hours of his music and um It's, it's a trip. I think it's kind of a trip when you meet someone who you feel that way about and then you're like, oh, this person, 
this person is like cranky or like this person is annoying or no, I mean, not that he's annoying, but he's cranky. He was cranky. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You knew that. Yeah. And just, just like dealing with a part of that. I think Ohad, the purpose of the music was to go back and find the songs that were meaningful to him when he was younger. So like play fiddle, play, um, and goodbye by benny goodman oh and, yeah yeah like these songs old songs um that meant something to to leave and then oh had made them like kind of dark <laughs> like with yes. them being dark with like bass clarinet alto yeah, yeah, yeah. flute two cellos viola like all the low instruments <laughs> yes <laughs> so there was that that was that element to it which was like you know i think Lee, um, I think Lee enjoyed himself, but he was, there were a couple, that was funny, a couple times where he would like, oh, I didn't hear that before. And we're like in the middle of a take and we have to stop because he's like talking. Because <laughs> we're all in the same room. Yeah. Because <laughs> he, obviously, we all know that Lee likes to record in the same room, not isolated. And then yeah. also like, can we move this microphone? Like, no, can't move the microphone. Gotta... <laughs> <laughs> need the microphone there for you so there were a couple times where we would we played the music with him and obviously like we re- rehearsed the music a lot with him but then there were times where we laid all of our parts down and then he came and um mm. played over the top of those of some of the takes i can't remember which ones or if they pieced them together or something like that but it was really an honor to be involved and I met a lot of people, got closer with people through that project, like Marielle Roberts, the cellist, one of the cellists on that record. I became, you know, better friends with her and got to know her better through that project. And that was mm. really special to me. Um, and then, you know, Jacob Sachs, I you know, started sort of playing a little bit more with him because when we did the performances, Jacob would be on them on the oh, piano. Cool. There's, I didn't there's know that. not a yeah there's not a lot of piano on that record but um but yeah jacob would come and play and so i also visited lee's place with jacob a couple times and oh, try nice. to take try to take him out for lunch <laughs> like, yep. one time we went over there and we went out to this jewish restaurant right nearby where he lives like a big uh like a diner a jewish diner and where they have all the sort of like traditional jewish New York traditional meals like the salmon and lox thing. I don't know what those are, but they usually involve meat, and I don't eat meat, so I don't pay attention. <laughs> and he, there was some people in the seats next to us who were being really loud, and he was talking really loud. Yep. And so then we had like to move. That. Oh no! Then we had to move to this other table, and then the music was really loud. And he was like, "Can you turn the music down?" Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure everyone has these stories about Lee. He's yes. just like really funny but I had some really good memories with him like being you know being in his room and like we're all just laying on the floor listening to music together those nice. moments I really I really cherish those. what did you listen or, to we listened actually he he wanted to play um we listened to that rec- our record together we listened to the record he did with Dan Tepfer mm-hmm. <laughs> the duo record um and then we listened to like tons of lester young solos oh great tons of them yeah like amazing he had a tape of just the solos and i'm it's kind of like the benedetti recordings of charlie parker where it's like just the charlie parker 
maybe head in and solo and yeah, yeah, everything the else is like techniques, right yeah and everything else is like deleted yeah 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 <laughs> but it's, yeah he had a tape like that with lester his favorite lester young solos like a tape and he put it in the tape and push the door and play it and the tape reels like <laughs> mm. <laughs> clearly been rewound and fast forwarded millions of times and he's singing along with all of them and Great. pointing out and pointing out all of the elements of lester i feel like that was one of his like all-time favorite soloists mm. and it's clear it's just so clear to me that he has a lot of that energy just like the momentum and um way of playing around with an one idea you know because yeah. lester was like so famously like not playing licks you know mm -hmm. playing like rhythms and ideas and like turning those ideas around you know yeah. in this certain way or laid back but obviously able to play at fast tempos and all this kind of stuff you know playing with a big band it's like amazing to me that lester young played with a big band it just yeah, to yeah, me yeah. It's, it's wild it's like yeah it's hard to imagine somehow <laughs> yeah it's hard to imagine it truly is mm -hmm. but yeah we listened to a lot of lester young and some some charlotte some bird and he had another tape where he took the solos he liked and like had them all there's a Warren Marsh recording too. I think it's called Art of. What is it called? There's two. It's like two whole CDs of only Warren Marsh solos that someone made. Mm. Art of something. But I have that one too, where it's just only his solos and then everything cuts out and then his solo again. <laughs> <laughs> the Art of Improvising, that's what it's called. Mm -hmm. Not the Art of Editing. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, there's this one moment on the on the album where you guys play Fooling Myself. Mm -hmm. And it has the most bizarre flute part, like very, very intricate and super fast lines. Yeah, right. With the clarinet. Yeah, right. It's so weird. Oh, um, so <laughs> in a moment like this, I want to I wanna get your perspective because a lot of musicians, a lot of musicians go through this um, these moments where you're supposed to play your part in order to elevate something else. It's not about your solo in that moment. It's about you playing a part. And if you don't do it right, or, you know, with the right kind of energy, uh, people have to do it again, who have to be even more creative in that moment. You know what I mean? Mm. And I got scared when I listened to you play that, that flute part, because it sounds like, whoa, <laughs> You know, it sounded so fast and so so complex, you know, and also, but it was serving a function of elevating and, and commenting on what Lee was doing, you know. So what is your process for moments like this? Like when we're playing that stuff in the moment? Mm -hmm. Oh, playing, playing parts in the moment. Yeah, I mean, I in those instances, I mean, I'm just trying really to practice it as much as possible so that it's sort of ingrained in my fingers and in the music itself because you can't even think about it anymore and it has to just be that always <laughs> I, I mean the process for me is really like repetition and yeah. just sitting sitting there and repeating over and over and over again almost like a transcription you know mm. um and then you know physically 
like what is it going to take me to be able to do to play that line like physically what do my fingers need to do and trying to find a better will especially on flute because you're balancing and there's so much room for so much possibility for cramping <laughs> like your hand is cramping um so how do you let go of the tension you know the, mm. so trying to practice without tension constantly just yeah with those kinds of faster lines because really the more tension that you have the more mistakes that are going to happen And how do you get something? It doesn't have to be that line on fooling myself, but anything. How do you get it to be subconscious and that you don't have to think about it? Yeah, I mean, I think singing, well, that's something I learned from Lee, singing something really slowly. And I think he learned that from Lenny Tristano. Like, And Pete, Lenny Tristano probably learned it from somebody. <laughs> um But singing, singing the stuff really slowly mm. and, and like right now I'm working on the John Coltrane countdown solo mm. and like that shit is fast, you know, and <laughs> yes. kind of like, you know, taking it really slow and being like, no, I can't play this at the tempo, but I will be able to, you know, mm -hmm. eventually. And I need to be able to hear everything, but slowly and then, okay tomorrow I'm going to go up like four clicks or something. Mm. And then, but I'll, but usually if I'm able to sing it really slowly, singing for me is, is like really important, <clears throat> really important, especially to, to get it to stay in my memory is if I'm like trying to sing it first, then I can always like figure it out later <clears throat> again in the future. I'll be able to figure it out and play it again later on in my life, you know, if you have it ingrained in your singing yeah. voice, I feel like you can always find it again later on down the line. And I think, I think that's one really important thing for me to sing along with the thing. And, and then also like find if there's different ways to play it with your technique, mm -hmm. with your fingers, you know, like what's going to be the best way to do it, the fingering pattern yeah, um, or like a false fingering pattern or, Saxophone. There's a couple of different ways to play a couple of different. I mean, luckily saxophone is easier than most instruments. <laughs> but um, but yeah, those those taking it slow, you know. Mm, yeah. Um, the countdown solo. I didn't learn the whole solo, but just a couple of moments from it that I really resonated with. Yeah. Uh, and it really really helped me to understand the Coltrane changes uh, sequence. Mm. so much mm -hmm. more than just looking at a song but the way he goes through those changes changes and it's something that i've heard you uh no that i read where you talked about the um addressing harmony through melody when you wrote about bach in his pieces that's totally applicable to what coltrane is doing mm. in this solo mm -hmm. and or any solo on coltrane changes Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Definitely. I mean, he's so it's it's so like searingly like core tones, you know, or yes. like yeah, or in some of the stuff is more interesting to me, like that line. Whatever. Trying to remember what exactly. Yeah. Da, da, 
That yes. line, you know, it's like really that turnaround. That one. Instead of, you know, da 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 da. But what everyone yes. takes away from the changes or something, but just that other little shift. And it reminds me also of like all of the um, permutations of, of patterns that I've learned through studying North Indian classical music, mm. um, like Hindustani classical music with I studied with this really um amazing vocalist named uh, Samarth Nagakar and he is out here and I've studied with him for maybe like on and off for a year and then I've just been meaning to go back and did a couple like we did one retreat where we were like intensively waking up at 5 a.m every morning wow. <laughs> to go and do this and like it was really cool but in that music i in that form of music there's a lot of emphasis on like you learn every permutation of a pattern so that and that reminds me of the way in which he seemed to work within that those core changes it's not just like one two three five not just that yes five three two one and like that that's another way of doing it so it's like you learn every chord change or every pattern and all these permutations and you know them equally as well so that they're yes. accessible to you at any given moment in time. Right. And that's how I felt. That's how I feel when I listen to people like Samarth singing. Um, everything is sort of coming from these permutations. Right. Yeah. If you look at him at Coltrane playing those changes and, and addressing numbers, as you said, to the, to the tones, Mm -hmm. And you could actually, after that, take the solo and play it differently, right? Like, right, yeah. I think that's mm -hmm. what he's doing in a way also throughout his solo. Mm -hmm. He's doing that also at times, you know, just taking the one, two, three, five. Yeah, but yeah. Saying like five, two, three, one, but going mm -hmm. up for the one and stuff like that, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's, I mean, it's really remarkable, and especially at that tempo and then, Oh, yeah. You know, also knowing that he is improvising, like he's improvising within <laughs> these structures. He's improvising within these structures, Scary. obviously, like shedding, you know. And nobody did it before him like that, you know, like he invented it. And, yeah. You know, he didn't invent like the the harmonic uh, relationship of major thirds or minor thirds right. or whatever. But, you know, he was the one who kind of, he kind of wrote that language, you know, in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. On the spot, you know, of course there was preparation also in place, but it's, yeah. so, it's so amazing that some, there are people out there who create their own language. That's, that's, that, that is a role model for us. Right. I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. I feel that way about Mary Lou Williams. There's certain things that oh, she yeah. does in her writing too, where, where it's like, okay, You, there's this one tune, I think it's called Mary's Idea. Yeah. Yeah. That song. Yeah. Right. And then I was thinking also about like the other one. 
Yeah, and also I like if, if there's there's another song by by Mary Lou Williams where um, it's a D flat, and I think on the recording it's in D, but it's a uh, rhythm changes. I just I learned it, but I for, forgot the title. But where she kind of maneuvers in a uh, very very cool uh, melodic fashion through D flat rhythm changes. You know, and every every A section is different, but also connected. So you can kind of see how she thinks about it, and and it almost sounds like a solo. And then there's a trumpet solo, which then later on turns out actually was written. So she she was so used. Uh, to to write for other people that she even wrote solos for some of them you know and it's a great wow. solo, you know yeah that's so cool yeah yeah she was really she was really special in that way i also wrote up um that that song a, fung a fungus among us <laughs> it was just really like it's really like a free yeah piece she was like, like she was against free music but then she was like Ah, let me do it. Let me do it myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. I wrote out like some of the patterns that I kept hearing again in that, mm. in that piece. And yeah, she's pretty special. She's really special. I recently learned Scorpio from the Zodiac um, mm. Suite. Nice. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I really like that piece. Yeah, I got to learn other ones. I feel like I've, I've just learned Cancer because that's my oh, cancer, that's my yes. zodiac sign, and then uh, in Gemini, those are the only two that I've learned. Have you heard the recording where um, uh, Ben Webster plays Cancer Cancer with her? Oh yeah, right. Yes, that's so good. I love that. <laughs> it's gorgeous. How incredible is it to hear his his uh, his sound with her melodies? Is it like yeah, it's pretty. That's so cool. Yeah. What's your take on, um, did you write down cancer? Yeah, I, I did. Well, at first I didn't write it down and I just learned it by mem. I learned it sort of from the recording and I was like trying to, I did it for a little while, like in a solo setting. So I would like get my loop station yeah. and loop the chords and loop everything and sort of play it um, as a composition as it was played. 
And so I learned it all that way. And then I wrote it out and then now, and then I found some other charts where everything is like a lot more. There's some, there's some charts online where people wrote out all the chords and stuff. And that's really helpful. So I, sometimes I'll just use those cause they're much nicer looking than, than mine. But. I'd be interested to see yours. And also I'm interested in, do you think that if you played with a band, do you also play da 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 like that, 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 middle piece the middle section yeah do you also yep. play it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah yeah because I, i was thinking about it yeah yeah because some of the parts are chromatic and the inner part is like da, 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 yeah. or something yeah. like that yeah um but yeah i do i play that part the next part too like i play off yeah it's so great it's like yes. at the end everything comes back and it's slower though it's like mm -hmm. it's pretty it's awesome very emotional moody Yeah, yeah, yeah. The moody but, cancer. <laughs> but isn't that isn't that so? I mean, when I wrote uh, read her book, and there's also movies about her, isn't that? I think it's heartbreaking to see how little recognition she has gotten, and also how little opportunities to record. I mean, in a time where she was yeah. really active, how many people got uh, like? Uh, handed a blue notes recording contract or riverside or whatever mm. like a heartbeat and she had somehow with everything that she went through and accomplished and everything that she stood for she had trouble finding a contract somebody who would let her record and pay her money mm -hmm. and she had to do you know kind of do her own label and you know uh It's really hard to to imagine what she went through. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yep. It seems like she found Miriam McParland has you know has had different kind of opportunities. You know. Yeah, yeah. It seemed like Mary Lou found her peace in you know Catholicism when she mm. sort of she had this religious awakening that really helped her through that time which is positive and it out of it we got like this mass you know oh yeah mm -hmm. which is gorgeous and incredible i mean i'm i'm so glad that those elements came out of the suffering i mm -hmm. mean she's like she's quoted in saying that like jazz jazz created out of suffering you know mm -hmm. um and the music the music of suffer of people who are suffering and um you know out of all of the people though she i mean i think i feel like there's been more of a resurgence now you know of people yeah. being like oh mary lou williams um and people re-adapting you know i know jerry allen did a readaptation of the zodiac oh, yeah. seed and then like my friend lim yang she's a great bass player here she just put out an album oh um, okay of this of the whole thing again in a very very creative sense like a beautiful setting And so, you know, but I think people are starting to, with this gender revolution that we're going through right mm. now, um, this is something people are taking note of and trying to be better about, but it's yeah. still real. It is, it is, it is hard to, to see it. And then you, 
like, you know, recently I've been asked to do some guest sort of guest appearances at, at these colleges. And so the people are like, what do you want to play with our band? And I'll always be like, let's play a Mary Lou Williams composition. Yes. And they're like, we don't have that any of our, in any of those songs in our library. And I'm like, ah, oh. yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah. And and that's this, that is a sad truth of it. Like, yeah. Why not? And why isn't there like a whole big band arrangement of the Zodiac Suite? Somebody go exactly. and do that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, please. Let's somebody, <laughs> somebody please go and do that. I mean, but, but then on the other hand, you know, there are a lot of libraries um, with the pieces that she's arranged for Andy Kirk. Mm-hmm. which is cool i mean yeah. i've I've seen some of those charts though like with his name on them which is not yeah. cool no but that's cool there's pieces from it's interesting back then who took the credit for what you know like you yeah. know with duke ellington and billy strayhorn and like mm-hmm. oh you know billy strayhorn wrote take the a train yes <laughs> you know duke ellington did not write that song even though he's like constantly credited with writing that song um but you know it's it, there's other things that might have been in the works for or why she didn't her name wasn't formally written on some of those manuscripts but that's unfortunate and i wish it was different i think people are starting to realize and shifting a little yeah, bit totally and of course there's been people who've been at the forefront of that fight for a long time like maria schneider who's never put her music on any kind of public platform you know and she's standing at the con she's standing standing at congress like arguing with you know senators and congress people about musicians rights and publishing and she's been fighting for this for like 30 years or however long she's been in doing this you know yeah. so that's helpful you also talked in that really really i love that um lecture that you did on on jazz and gender you found that really really um inspiring you also talked about the fact of of um standards where there were women composers but men took credit for it or you know yeah and that's 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 tough i think that's really tough um I don't really know what to say about it. It's it's just, and then also some of those composers, um, some of those composers had uh, pen names or like writer yes. names where it was like a male name. And so they changed the name in order to get their pieces published, which was a thing, you know, mm-hmm. at a certain time, which is, yeah, that's tough. Because then, then those things stuck, they stuck. And so then... Then what happens mm-hmm. for the for the history of us knowing who wrote the actual song? So yeah, that's tough. That's really, but yeah, yeah. I have a spread. I have a spreadsheet that I started, and I wanted to ask you yeah, about I'm that. If you could share, share. it, yes, mm-hmm. I'm happy to always to share that with everyone in the world. <laughs> I'm working on it. I'm working on it constantly. I mean, not constantly. I feel like I come back and forth to it, but I'm working on just making sure, like the record. I'm trying to listen to all of the songs and basically kind of describe them all um like what it is it's like a blues and it's easy so beginners can play it you know yeah um or if there's a link to a transcription of it which is pretty rare to see Mm. um but i'm that's like the next step for me is to do that and then obviously i want to make it longer right now i think there's like 400 songs on there you know yeah and some some people had a lot of music like 
Shirley Scott, she wrote so much music um, mm. that doesn't get played and that a lot of, you know, we could take a lot of those pieces. Someone just needs to do the work of it. And what's really cool is people are like Terry Lynn Carrington is doing yes. the work um, yes. for some of those older writers and new, new and old um, in her book, obviously. And she's, you know, just volume one. So that's so exciting. Um, but for some of these old, like Shirley Scott, for example, with these, you know, all these compositions that she wrote, like that we could take into the schools for young, young people, you know, mm. instead of always just being like, oh, let's all play sunny moon for two <laughs> yep. and, you know, take the A train and like all these standards. And it's, it's tough because everyone's like, I want all the parents, they want to hear stuff that they recognize. Of course. Yeah. So fighting that against that, like, what do you do? What do you it's a tough one. Yeah, representation is the is the key, like to empower that. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm wondering. You just said like um, gender revolution, but I think you're a little older than me. But we're more or less from the same generation. You are like 81, born in 81. Yep. You're not 81. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm 81 years old. Can you <laughs> believe it? I'm taking a supplement. <laughs> <laughs> what is in that tea? Let me tell me about that. Tea. <laughs> yeah, right. This is a special tea that, <laughs> that makes me. It's the fountain of youth tea. <laughs> well, you're 81. I'm 86. So, if you have any questions about what what I look like, <laughs> I'm happy to answer your questions. Oh, that's so. So, funny. Uh, this is us uh, in our 80s. Uh, no, uh, you're from 81. I'm from 86. And when I was coming up, there were even less women in on the scene uh, mm. or visibly on the scene. And whenever there was a, a girl, I um, th there were people who said, "Like you, you, you were in a way supposed to sound male, or everything that you." play would be attributed to yeah she's got some balls she can play with balls it's stuff stuff like that you know right so it's mm -hmm. still when we were coming up those things were in place and they are still in place but now there's this revolution so i was wondering because when i saw female musicians back then um they weren't openly talking or even thinking maybe about changing something or uh, getting a discussion going. Um, most of them that I've encountered, and there weren't many, I have to say, on sessions or in on jazz programs, they were trying to be um, more male than female in terms of how they present themselves musically and even, you know, um, uh, socially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So my question is, um, when did it kind of uh, blossom for you in that way? Well, yeah, I mean, I think now it's been blossoming more than ever, which is really quite beautiful to feel in this moment. I mean, being a part of that book, of Terry Lynn's book, and her the next legacy jazz project which is empowering 
young women and non-binary folks to perform together and play each other's compositions and come together and like discuss these experiences. Um, those things are all so positive. Um, and I think you're right. Cause even Mary Lou Williams, um, it's funny. I'm, I'm teaching a course at the new school with my colleague and friend, Sarah Elizabeth Charles. And right now it's like a, it's a master's course so for graduate students. And so we're reading a lot of papers and articles about um, gender in the music and also just gender philosophy in general. Um, and the article that we're reading for this coming Monday is this article by Nicole Rustin. And the title of it is Mel Mary Lou Williams plays like a man. And that's a quote from like a, uh, like a review of, of her playing by someone, you know, during her time. Um, and she talks about that in terms of like bringing something to the table, bringing like a, an assertiveness to the table. Um, and in this article, I feel like Nicole Rustin is talking about like the like the black woman, black woman aesthetic. Like, what does a black woman have to do to navigate the world, you know, as a, a woman who's black? Um, and why is it important to like define what a black black female genius in jazz? What does that look like, you know? And she's addressing these questions in her article and. Um, it's so important for us to sort of like imagine that because we've been so sort of, you know, obsessed with defining like what a, what a male genius in jazz is, you know, what it, and so even if it looks slightly different, what are the terms or like, what is, what does it actually mean? Or what, if we imagined it to be, it doesn't have to be all strategized out, but it could just be just like a think thinking piece. Um, and I think some of those qualities of, of feminine like classic femininity could be valued a little bit more like the non assertiveness that's traditionally non feminine <laughs> it's i'm using all these things in quotes because it's like everything is changing now and because we have so many trans identifying people and non-binary people who are embodying the spectrum of gender um of gender, then it allows for different qualities in the music. And so like, you can have a really assertive woman, or you can have a more feminine and less assertive man, you know, yes. and I think all yes. of those, those ways of being are like acceptable. And that's what's so beautiful about living in this time, because the younger generation, the people in their 20s, who I see, they're just like, not putting up with it. <laughs> they're just like, no, women aren't. There is not there is no thing as femininity. <laughs> And it's so cool. And it's really empowering. It's pretty, mm -hmm. it's pretty empowering. They're just, they just don't stand for it. And yeah. that is really exciting. Um, but I still think there's an important way to incorporate both because Mary Lou Williams lived through those experiences and she even <laughs> said herself, like she said these words herself, like there's something to learn about that. Or, or a player like Terry Lynn Carrington, who I believe has commented on her own playing in the past um, as embodying this certain way of playing and how that has shifted over the years of her improvising and expressing mm -hmm. herself. And like, that's pretty cool for a person who's been playing since the age of what, four or three or something, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's interesting. I, I like, what is, what is female masculinity look like, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and that could be something that we don't have to take so uh, 
literally. Like people, yeah, literally. Or people don't have to get so offended when yeah. we can. We be like, oh yeah, that that woman is masculine, you know, like in this in these ways or whatever. Um, I feel like everyone is now like very being very careful <laughs> and like well, don't say that. And <laughs> but sometimes it's like, hey, let's just say, let's say it, let's get it out there, you know, mm-hmm. let's talk, let's talk more about it, you know. Yeah. So we can all learn better and come up with a way to navigate all these questions in a way that can include everyone instead of exclude, you know. Right. I think that's what the problem has been is like excluding, not yeah. inviting. Like don't being at a jam session and like the women in the room are all like in one corner <laughs> and no one's asking them to play. You know, that's yeah. I've seen that time and time again, but that's not common as much as it was before. And that's great. Yeah, I'm happy about that. But what was it like for you when you were coming up as a as a young player? Yeah, I I would say that for me, um, for me, I identify a lot with Mary Lou Williams and what she had said, which is like with working with men, you get you sort of start to get to thinking like a man when you play, and you sort of like automatically become strong in this way which is like i'm saying a lot of inappropriate things but it doesn't mean that you're not becoming masculine or strong in that way it doesn't mean that you're not feminine you yeah know? of course yeah i think i've always had these elements in my playing but i will say that i think um typically speaking I, in my past i like i always liked the teachers that were hard on me and gave me like harsh feedback um because that made me go to the practice room and there's a little bit of like um abuse in that model and i think it's maybe not okay to like yell at someone and say you suck and then that makes you want to practice like there's something wrong with that <laughs> yeah. um i feel like it's slightly unhealthy it's like you um you're taking abuse and you you're like taking it because you think you're not good enough and then that makes you better that's not healthy But I think if there's a way to sort of reshift things and be like, okay, you sound really great, but these elements of your playing are not good. And it's not because of how you identify. Like, I'm just, I'm hearing that you haven't spent time on your intonation or you right. haven't spent time working on your time or you haven't spent time working on these changes if that's what you want to do. Like some people don't want to play changes and that's totally fine. But if you want to do that, you're not doing it, <laughs> you know? Um, and it doesn't have anything to do with- Just uh, being, it's just being real in a way, right? Yeah. And it has Respectfully. nothing- to, Right. It's nothing to do with like how good of a person you are. Like you're an amazing person and you offer so much to the world from what you can do with your natural capabilities of playing your instrument or singing or whatever. But these things, if you want to get better at them, are not good. And here's what we can do to get better at them. Um, instead of, you know, insulting people or, you know, there's been a lot of shaming Mm-hmm. And that's not okay either. Oh, you don't know that tune? What's wrong with you? Or like, mm-hmm. oh, you don't know that record? How come you don't know that record? And ha ha ha, or what, you know, like all mm-hmm. that stuff. It's, old, it's kind of an old school way totally, of yeah. being in the education system. And it's not okay anymore. Like, let's let's get rid of all the shaming and all the other stuff. You're like, okay, you don't know that record? Here's why it's important. Done, you know. Or even opening up that 
canons. Like we need to open up the canon and be like, yeah, you know why, you know, Mary Lou Williams Zodiac Suite should be on the top 10 records of all time. You know, maybe let's kick off something. Maybe let's kick (laughs) off like Dizzy Gillespie, the eternal triangle. Like maybe you don't need that record in there right now. Like maybe Mm -hmm. let's just, you know, let's get another list going and we can just, we can modify this list. Like Duke Ellington doesn't have to be the best jazz composer in the Mm -hmm. world all for every year of when we're judging these things like we can get it let's get it to be somewhere somewhere else or like okay duke ellington charles mingus you know like it's always the same people like what about jerry allen like i you know jerry allen's no longer living let's you know give her flowers like it's time for us to move on a bit you know and Mm -hmm. i'm not to not to put anybody down ellington or charles mingus or whatever but like (laughs) there's other people that have been standing around for a long time Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it's time that we sort of um embrace those aspects and put them in the canon like we don't need to have those same records every time in canon the history books are so repetitive and i feel like we could shift those things yeah a bit anyway i'm uh, i'm done with my rant Keep it coming. Uh, but anyway, what I want—I also want to say that, like Mary Lou Williams, I learned this really great thing from her. Because a lot of people are like, "What's it like to be a women musician?" And she would say something like, "I don't think about it a lot." And um, I guess because first, I'm a musician. That's what I am. First, I'm a musician. Yeah. And I love—I love that taking away that quote. It's like, yeah, and you know, I think a lot of people in the older generation, or even in my generation, are like, "Oh, I." try not to think about the fact that I'm a woman. I just try to think about the music. Um, but there's there, I mean, I have thought a lot about how I'm a woman in this music and how I'm getting on stage and there's no one on stage who looks like me. There's no other woman yeah. on stage or, or in other situations. How could you forget that? How could you not think about that <laughs> when you're standing on stage like that? I, you know? So I think saying, Oh, I didn't think about it. I don't know. Really? You didn't think about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. So yeah, there's, I do like the quote and I think that it describes my life coming up too, but I had to go back and be like, well, I was sort of pushing that aside a bit in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you were just um, talking a little bit about teachers and mentors. And I, I was curious about that. Um, who were important people um, whose lessons or pieces of advice you still resonate with and that you still have to sometimes, I, I, I certainly know that I have certain memories of, of people whose sentences I repeat in my mind when I need to, you know, you, there's certain pieces mm-hmm. of advice where like, I, I think I need to hear this memory again right now to feel more at ease with a certain thing, you know? So I'm I'm curious about these kind of situations. Maybe you could share a little bit of that. Well, Jerry Allen was a big part of my life for a minute because I was doing the Sisters in Jazz program, the mentorship program, and she was our mentor for that, you know, couple of weeks. And she was really encouraging of my compositions. She really encouraged my writing and said that there was something about my writing that seemed to speak to people. And she pulled me aside and told me that, um, that she was watching the audience when all of the pieces were being played. We played it like Dizzy's, you know, 
and like, oh my gosh, we're all these young, <laughs> we're so young and we're like playing at Disney's, you know, but she was like, I, I watched the audience and I was trying to see how they were going to respond to the music. And I always took that away. It's like, she was watching the audience. <laughs> that's so cool. Who does that? Um, and I think that's so such an important factor that we sort of almost forget in a way. Mm. Like, what are they doing out there? Like, there's people out there and we need those people to come and listen to the music in some ways. And like, is there something about your music that can catch, can grab them? Um, and if, if there is, I mean, within reason, you know, you wouldn't try to change yourself to appease other people. But if there's a certain thing that really gets people going about your music, maybe like embrace that. I, I took that from away from her, mm -hmm. Jerry Allen. I think she was really able to do that with like a range of style, like her music, man. Oh just, yeah. It's, it's remarkable. Just like the, the breadth of, you know, these records with all these different synthesizers and like these records with like this African percussion section, you know, or these. Did you talk about that? Like um, what we talked about before, like the diversity in music and playing in various musical oh. situations. Yeah, I mean, I think she she did tell us that we should be adaptable, adaptive, adaptive mm. to to whatever, um, whatever kind of situation we were beginning to be put in. And she created some really deep challenges for us. Like I remember we were playing softly as in a morning sunrise, and she wanted us to play, you know, was it? yeah, and she wanted us to sort of do it like Lonely Woman, like like a really fast drum beat, like nonsensical, like not in time, but just like, and we're playing the melody over the top of it in, this, in the same sort of way. Yeah. Inspired by the recording of Lonely Woman. Lonely Woman. Um, and that was like a big challenge for a lot of people in the band. And, and like, I think some people are like, I don't know how to do that. And she sat us down and was like, look, we need to, you need to be like adaptable. Cause if you're working for a person and they come in and tell you they want to do the arrangement like this, You're gonna. You, that's your job. You know, you you're in this band. You want to do this as a live as a living uh, musician. You got to be adaptable to what people want and be able to sort of um, be present in the situation to what the music needs. That yeah. was that was definitely something else I took away from her and other people who helped me be weird. <laughs> Mario Pavone. <laughs> he was wow. He was a big one for me. Mario Pavone. He was a bass player. And I met him at the at, uh, Litchfield Jazz Camp. He was, he passed away a couple of years ago and um, just an incredible composer and bass player. You said didn't he, really, he helped you be weird? Yeah, he helped me be weird. He, he just, I just remember, you know, going to this jazz camp and you know, you're at jazz camp and so everyone's trying to get you to play your two, five, one, and like, <laughs> just, you know, play this in hospital keys and, you know, this is what we need to be doing right now. Um, you know, on the grand scale of like what we're of everything, like we gotta learn our minor two fives. And, like, let's drill them right now and take it through the keys. And then, but he's like, "What are you writing? You know, what are the things you're working on?" And like, "Hey, do you want to try out this piece of mine and read it?" And I can't really write the music down, but I'll teach it to you on the bass. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, "Wow, what a cool!" And for a person who sort of. He came to the that aspect of music, like writing original music and playing upright bass later in life. Like, I believe he was, you know, maybe 40 or something when he started doing that. And then to have the the output that he did 
was pretty miraculous. Mm. Um, yeah, he was really an important person for me, just hearing hearing music in my head and being being strong enough to write it down and go for something that someone might feel is weird and not in the not in like a straight ahead lane. He was really important for me. Um, and then other people, you know, Von Freeman from mm -hmm. Chicago, really, really important to, to watch. And I just always loved how he brought up the vote, but he had this weekly jam session at the new apartment lounge and he always bring up the vocalist first. He played mm -hmm. a set and then he would bring up all the vocalists right, right away first. And that was so cool. I, I, he he loved and he always like learn your lyrics and songs you don't know the lyrics to the song i can hear it mm. <laughs> just that kind of thing you know you need to go home and sit with the lyrics yeah. you obviously don't know them <laughs> um he was a really special person and he had these like hand rubs where you just like, rub your hand like massage, with everybody every person like human any kind of identifying person male female you know, all different gender expressions, he would just be like massaging her <laughs> for a while. Just like, how you doing, baby? <laughs> just wow. like massaging and just kind of like, you know, old school, nothing, nothing weird. Just that's mm -hmm. what he did. Like I said, he did that with, with men too. Just his way of connecting. His, yeah. And really a listener and just, when you listen to him play standards or any kind of lines, there's nobody like that, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some and other people too from Litchfield was like a big part of my life had, had always been when I was sort of growing up in the jazz community the people there. Chris Allen, who's an amazing alto saxophone player and human. Um, Jimmy Green and mm -hmm. uh, Claire, Claire Daly and Mike DeRubo. All these musicians were really important to me growing up. David Berkman. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, people who were like teaching at that camp, Matt Wilson, who are my friends now. <laughs> mm -hmm. People who I, people who I really love. They they all just had such great attitudes about life. Yeah, Claire Daly, she's really special person too. I just had to think about that in our music or in this this art form. What you just said, like people who are my friends now, like. Isn't that cool that we get to have experience like that where um, you get to play for somebody and you still sound like shit or you still sound like somebody who can't really play. And after a while, you get better through those experiences also. And then you get to ask them for your gig or they mm. ask you for their, their gig. And then you become more or less colleagues uh, and, and, and friends. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that, I mean, I'm not sure in, in how many um, walks of life or, or um, um, professions that's the case where you can be like a, like a lousy beginner mm. and become like eye to eye or even, you know, go further in a way mm -hmm. like that. That's true. That's very true. Yeah, because even like in visual art or anything, you're kind of solo out there. Although there's a lot of, I feel like there's a lot of talking amongst people. Yeah. But yeah, it's true. It's like very interesting 
how that worked. And there's no, yeah, there's like no HR. Younger and older people, you know, playing together. Yeah, it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. It's cool. Um, I was also curious about you, you studied psychology. And um, when I teach or when I, you know, you play in bands and um, there are certain moments where I always think like, yeah, we're doing music, but it's actually therapy or it's actually, it comes down to psychology on all mm -hmm. levels. Every time you're dealing with humans and you're dealing with emotions and you're dealing with insecurities that get uh, transported into actions, musical actions sometimes or oftentimes, you know? Yeah. So I'm curious what you kind of learned about yourself or the human condition and the musician's condition through studying psychology. Well, I mean, I certainly, it's funny. There's been people who've done this for so many years, like Lenny Tristano was super into Wilhelm Reich, right? Like mm -hmm. there's some of those, some of those guys where, who really kind of came out of like the second generation of Freud, you know, just this, this way of dealing with um, this sort of reflexive psychology or the, you know, the therapy really, or that kind of cognitive behavioral therapy or something. But yeah, what I studied is really more like cognitive psychology. So I really was more looking into like these lab studies and being working in labs and like looking at behaviors and then, codifying the data into like a conclusion or discussion <laughs> um which is like you know more of the science more of the biology to as biology right. is to medicine or something so for me um with respect to this idea of therapy or looking at psychology from the therapeutic side of things i've definitely come to understand how important does the body work is like somatic somaticism like looking into all of the centers of your body and where blocks could be located mm. um, and that has a lot to do with emotionalism and trauma response and i've learned a lot of that from outside of school like from um what let's see the body keeps the score do you know that book mm -mm. um yeah that's a great book um that i've read and learned so much about from like these trauma centers that are, could be blocked like oh you have a block in your head because i don't know you were hit as a child or something i don't know there's all these different kinds of ways that we can tell um or get into that kind of thing but that's sort of been out of school for me mm -hmm. and mo more of the other stuff was getting a little more analytical about the process of how we come to understand the world so like what are the things what are the cognitive systems of organization that go into us like looking at the world and you know being in the world so that was sort of mm -hmm. more what i was more interested in and putting that into um uh like a science practice or you know collecting data or doing experiments and that kind of thing yeah, and it I feel like it more had influenced like this process of looking up this these articles about the Alula structure and these mag you know, these journal articles and like finding these ratios and then using that 
as a means to write the music, you know? Um, right. That's been really helpful for me. Mm. Um, or if I don't, if I like, what do I do now <laughs> for the next piece, next group of pieces? And okay, now I'm like really interested in poetry, and so I'm studying these po poets, and I'm looking into all these different structures of poetry, like the sonnet, and you know, what what does it take to be sort of analytical about it? And that's always been this part of my personality: like it or love it, like it or love it or hate it. <laughs> 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 I was just reading uh, your dissertation or starting to read it uh, when I was waiting for you and I have to say some of it um, surpassed my knowledge of the English language a little bit so uh, I, oh, it's okay. <laughs> you know but um, the basic uh, thesis was um, or the basic theory was that how do we get to know something and what does the, what happens in our brain if we like how does knowledge get into our brain or yes that was it yeah. right mm -hmm. yeah what are just the basic premise of cognitive systems like what is what does a cognitive system look like and how does it influence how we interpret the things we interpret on a daily basis um, and then how does community influence that like how do the people around us influence how we like create cognitive systems hmm. and that was on the on the premise of jazz and and uh important jazz people who who played the music and okay mm -hmm. yeah like are you listening to louis armstrong for you know the tone of what he's playing Or are you listening to him because of the lines or like the actual notes that he's playing? And I feel like the people who organize themselves into these communities um, where they like continue to play with each other, they value like the same thing. So like, of course, they're going to want to play with each other because they have this like cognitive system that values lines over tone or vice versa right. or it doesn't have to be that it's just a really dumb example but it's an example of something you know where you like value the pitch content over the texture or the the texture of the tone you know right. whereas like some other people really value the texture of the tone and that means more to them than like playing over changes or playing over these things and um because of that like switch or that disagreement um in the in the cognitive system then you might have like a disagreement in life, like in, in life of itself. And then, then people are, I feel like at the center of it, that's like why people vibe each other because they don't understand each other. <laughs> If right. we could just sit and understand each other better then we wouldn't have as much conflict. So how do we do have it? Much... How do we understand <laughs> each other better? I mean, I think it comes down to people, people's motivation for wanting to, you know, you can't force someone to do anything. You can't force people to do to do things you know um but yeah i think i think it comes down to wanting to understand more about what people value about their cognitive systems how they organize their cognitive systems mm -hmm. you know? and what what sparked that that observation of yours uh from back then uh, yeah i took a lot of influence from a really amazing researcher named doug medine m-e-d-i-n who studied cognitive systems in um, Native American people and uh, white people. <laughs> so, and looked at their um, 
survival strategies. So, or really it was their fishing practice. I'll be more specific. So I was looking at Native Americans and white people and how they fish hmm. and how they think of fish. And so I worked with him at Northwestern where I got my PhD and we sort of developed a similar system for me doing this with musicians. And um, he found, he wrote a book called Culture in Conflict or Conflict and Culture, either one of those ways, Culture in Conflict. And um, he basically was explaining why there's been all these issues between Native Americans and white people um, who came here because they understand the world differently. They're, they're organizing their knowledge differently and, and they can't understand each other. They don't want to understand each other. So then there's all these conflicts arising. Um, and it's a great book. It's a really good book. I think it's very approachable for people who like want to understand this from like an academic standpoint without being too jargony, as you were saying, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> without using too much jargon. Um, yeah, it's really, it's a, it's a great book. And it was, that Say was the my, name again, please. Yeah, uh, Doug Medine, M-E-D-I-N, in culture and conflict. In culture and co- conflict. Okay. Yeah, I think it's just culture and conflict, but I'd have to. Yeah. I think yeah, we can look it up. Yeah, culture and conflict. Um. Oh, culture and resource conflict. That's what it is. Okay. Yeah, I was almost there. Oh, he would hate me if I got that wrong. Um. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's so, you know, we can take it out. <laughs> but yeah, culture and resource conflict, why meanings matter. It's so good. It's such mm. a good book. I very highly much recommend that book. He was, yeah, he was the reason for that idea. It was his idea, really. So. Um, cool. Um, let me ask you, um, all of us as musicians, we have periods of self-doubt and and writer's block or you know yeah in to some extent and uh, i'm curious how you deal with situations like that periods like that yeah i think one of the hardest things for people to do is just do something like if you get really stuck and you're just you know i think maybe at the worst is like you're you're in bed and you can't even get up you know but if you just had one if you just had a small very small goal like okay my goal today or in this next hour is to get up you know i just i just have to get up that's all it is just one one thing that's all it is or, and, or maybe it's even below that like all i have to do is you know move a couple inches in the bed you know and that could be a goal too or all i have to do is maybe i'll lift my arm or something you know just this very small thing and then you start at this really like an attainable goal i think so many people in those hardship moments they're like i have to change the world (laughs) (laughs) and then they're so hard on themselves and i've been taught by a very good friend of mine who who maybe i've come to know over the past couple of years his name's keith lamar and he's on death row and um we've become very close and one of the things he taught me is to be more gentle with myself which is not my nature mm-hmm. <laughs> um and so i've been learning that a lot from him how to be more gentle with ourselves is to create these attainable goals like i know that i can play you know maybe you're just starting out on the, on your instrument and you 
you know, are really stuck and you're like, I, I suck and I don't know what to do next. Okay, well, I can play all 12 of my major scales. I can play them. And then maybe I can play them all, but I can't play them all with a metronome yet. So maybe the goal is to just, okay, we're just playing all the major scales, no metronome. But maybe next week I'll put the metronome on like 50 and I'll play quarter notes and I'll be able to play all those. And it's just these attainable goals, like the slow, slowly, but surely, you know, it doesn't have to be this huge, <laughs> literally, yeah. like I, I just want to lift my finger today. I did it. <laughs> you yes. know, like I yeah. lifted my finger. I put my shoes on or did something or, or it can even be as small as like I called someone yeah. and or texted. <laughs> Calls are more aggressive these days, I guess. <laughs> No one calls anymore anymore. Um, but yeah, it could just be a small thing of, or of even listening to a piece of music and writing down everything that you like about it or one thing that you like about it. And then you can put that thing in your composition if you're yeah. really struggling with like, I don't know how to write. I don't know what to do. Okay, what's your favorite song? Okay, let's listen to it five times in a row and write down one thing that you really love about the song and then use that for your next composition or mm -hmm. use that for a composition and you don't have to like it, you know? Um, but yeah, I think that can be one way to get through is small attainable goals and then celebrating yourself for mm -hmm. doing those things, you know? Um, and also another thing is what trying to like community is so important, you know? Yeah having a, a group maybe just having one person who you can call or talk to when things get really tough and maybe not your parents but someone <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah because yeah. you know parents like engage something else you know or maybe not a not not a partner or not your parents but someone mm -hmm. who can be neutral or maybe a therapist or someone who can help yeah. you know um and they're a part of your community in a certain way. And that's so important. I can't tell you how important that's been to me in those moments. Yeah. yeah I've just heard a, um, that um, uh, psychologist, Dr. Phil Stutz. Uh, oh, yeah. Have you heard about him? Mm -hmm. the, the tools? The tools, right. It's yeah. a movie, right? Or a documentary? So right now there's a movie on, on Netflix by Jonah Hill and he talks to his psychologist. Right. Yes. yes. I found it very, very cool and inspiring. And he said like, um, yeah, if you're feeling down and you are depressed and you can't get out of bed, like if you just reach out to one person and that can be your, the guy at the bakery or somebody on the street, just reach out in some form, call him, talk to him, uh, write to them or whatever that person then stands for the whole represents the whole world you know and yeah. the first step towards that direction and there can be a friend where who you open up towards in terms of your musical or artistic problems also you know if we talk yeah talk about musicians in that way yeah, yeah definitely true. and it can be it can be so isolating in music you know because then you're thinking oh well all my friends are musicians and then Yep. Are you really your friends? And <laughs> it's just, mm -hmm. Yeah, it can really spiral. It's a lot of spiraling. Um, but yeah, I think that's really good advice. Reaching out to one person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or an animal. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, or a dead person, you know, like, mm -hmm. a, like I talk a lot about portals and like that being a big part of my work recently. And you can talk to those people. I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but like they're a part of you. If you knew yep. them really well, you can always talk to those people. And it's not the same, obviously, as when they were here, but mm -hmm. it's, it's pretty close. And I feel like I learned a lot of that from Thich Nhat Hanh about um how to talk to people or the buddha you know i feel like he learned that from the buddha how mm. to consider death as not necessarily being that bad you know mm -hmm. if we're all just like afraid of death and right <laughs> it's a we're afraid of the inevitable right this is a pretty certain thing <laughs> so certain <laughs> yep oh my god mm. Oh, I'd love to talk to you about uh, Left. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's my favorite song from the from the album. Thanks. <laughs> Today I tried to learn these the fast lines. Uh, you know, the, mm -hmm. did you think of that harmonic sphere there as coming from the Messian, uh, the third mode? Or did you base it on that? Because it kind of mostly fits into it. Oh, does it? That's so cool. I wasn't. I mean, that moment where the, where those fast lines come. The fast lines are coming. Yeah, I was like interested in those that collection of notes, and then I couldn't ever decide like what order I wanted them to be in, and so I kind of shifted them around. Like every time they would appear, they would start on like a different note. Um, but really, it came out of I couldn't. I was kind of exploring on the saxophone and I came upon that sound and then I was like, I really can't play this on my saxophone. <laughs> so I really came out of me just, I want to play this. Uh -huh. And it came out of that. I really came out of that. Like the mechanics of the horn. The mechanics yeah. Overcoming of those that. notes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then but you yeah, had everybody play it. Also Julian had to play them, you know, from a, play from a different yeah. point. Much as much you. to his chagrin, he really. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. He loved it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, a lot of different people played it, and then it kind of. It was the the, I, I kind of you know have taken a lot of thought about how to like build chord structures from the scales in this way, like from those kind of scalar monophonic patterns mm -hmm. scale patterns from like barry harris the way that he like stacks those like like in the major scale where it's like major six to a diminished chord to major yep. six and they're all in like different versions and then you can like put a space a gap in one and then you come up with these really cool chords so i did that yes. and that's how i sort of came up with those that big like corral section at the end where mm -hmm. um people you know the saxophone and trumpet are like da da Yeah. and then the horn, the strings are doing this whole like ding, 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 that part yeah. that's how i came up with those chords from the sort of like stacking yeah the and putting gaps inside inside of the um putting gaps inside of the stacks of that chord of that monophonic structure yeah my favorite moment out of the whole piece is when it quickly resolves to a d flat minor like the do <laughs> Oh you know? yeah, that, yeah. That's my favorite moment. Yeah. <laughs> and what Thanks. I love about it is that it is so, like it's a fleeting moment. Mm -hmm. But to me, it really stands out because- That's cool. 
what I said also uh, uh, about that that mode that I thought it was in, you know, that seems to be like an overarching, like one harmonic world, but the D flat minor sticks out somehow. And mm. that creates like a, like this, oh, whoa, you see, you see all, all of a sudden, you see everything from a different standpoint for, for a moment. And mm -hmm. usually mm -hmm. I, I, I often see this in, in music of people like, if they have a moment like that, they loop it or they come back to it ever so mm. often. Mm -hmm. because it feels mm -hmm. so nice this this moment right. but it loses its quality and the um, mm -hmm. um the unexpected you know uh, the the that unknown feeling somehow if you always come back to it if you always come back to it yeah exactly mm -hmm. so i true. love that you did this in this moment just very glimpse a very glimpse of it <laughs> yes so i was i was curious like was this as a big of a moment for you as well when you wrote it or was it like oh it's cool I, i'm gonna go here for a minute and then return to uh that other vibe um i mean that piece it, what it, I, I, it wasn't a moment for me no that piece is re really like these these puzzle pieces that i was really kind of like trying to interrupt everything's interrupted by everything else and that was the vibe that i was sort of going for in general in that piece um to sort of get this feeling of like lot you know being just left just being abandoned you know and that's sort of what i was going for there in general but i had i had a bunch of the way the process for that piece was like i had a bunch of these sort of angular gestures and i was i had like i had literally had them on like post-it notes or i cut them out and put them on the wall and mm -hmm. then i like arranged them in these ways and i've seen people do that before that's not my idea you know i've seen people do that writers like yeah. journalists and fiction writers and i've heard people talk about that process um and i'd like to do that a lot like take things from outside of music and like try to put them inside of music in some yeah. way like it's really inspiring so when i was at mcdowell the artist retreat i talked to a lot of authors there um I'm like what's your process for writing fiction or like what do you do and that was one thing that kept coming up oh i put all the pieces of my story on the wall and then i like try to visually see them and how they fit together i'm like oh man i'm gonna, I'm gonna do that and i did that with yeah. a piece i cut all the ideas up and then i'm like all right give it to the trumpet even though it doesn't really lay well on the trumpet mm -hmm. <laughs> like, let's give it to the strings they're really gonna hate me <laughs> um in this moment but yeah that kind of thing you know mm. and look luckily we had time to rehearse because it was a pandemic so i'm not sure if it would work now but <laughs> Yeah, how did that that new album? When when is it going to come out? Probably in twenty twenty four because I'm just now getting around to editing that album. Right. Okay. And I have another one coming out before that, which is Alula, like part two, which is um, with now this record that should be coming out either late this year or early next year um, with Taishan Story and Val Janti, um, Chris Tordini. And then as a guest on a couple of tracks, Kasim Nakvi, who mm -hmm. plays modular synth. Cool. Um, yeah, and that one's sort of like a Lula part two because it has a lot of electronics and that sort of 
Alula is like my code word for electronic music and Caroline. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, so that'll be coming out before the portals part two. Nice. Yeah. What was mm-hmm. I su- supposed to ask here? <laughs> I wanted to ask <laughs> something about that. Well, never mind. It, it'll come back or <laughs> not today. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the, um, we're, um, we're, we're going to play together. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to that. Um, yeah. but maybe this is even a bit selfish. Um, but I'm going to take advantage of this situation that I get to talk to you before. Do it. So if you get called for somebody, if you get called for a gig, what do you expect from the person who asks you? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just so dependent on like the kind of music, but okay. Mostly, you know, first of all it's like logistically which everybody should know that like but maybe they don't but like telling people where it is or what it's gonna pay and like how much time and where you're gonna go and what how much you're gonna get and what you need to do and all the logistics you know I feel like that's been an issue for some people but not for you so that's good (laughs) um And then also I like, I like to get the music, I like to get the music in advance, you know, that's nice. It's nice to get the music in advance so you can kind of get, because it takes a long time to sort of get into someone's head, you know? Mm -hmm. And like I told you before, I like, I like to listen to the music first and not look at the chart at all. Like the first time around, I just don't look at the chart. And then I just try to get an idea of what the music's going to be. Or if I'm about, if I'm going to play with someone and they didn't give me music, then I'll just go listen to them on, yeah. on, you know, on their stuff. I'll buy their records and I'll just listen to them. Um, and then, or listen to them on YouTube or whatever. And that really helps because then you sort of start to, it's hard. You want to get into people's aesthetic, you know, you want to see like, what are they, what do they want out of this experience or, and that can be like, maybe a good thing and a bad thing is maybe they don't want, maybe they just want you to be yourself and that is what I'm doing in this moment. And obviously I'm definitely not going to not be myself. So, but I like to get the music and <laughs> to check out the music. And I, I work on the music in advance so that when we're in rehearsal, we don't have to sit and wait for anyone to, to learn read the part. notes. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's so annoying. <laughs> mm. Everyone gets annoyed by that. And I've been that person in the past and I'm not shaming people for that, but at a certain point, you know, gotta yeah gotta step it up so yeah that's mostly it and like you know good vibes Mm -hmm. and but that's mostly it i don't expect very much honestly just Mm -hmm. kind of showing up and having good vibes and being open to things that's pretty much that's mostly it Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, it's pretty much in line w- with what I expect as well. I also like having the music in advance so you can get a vibe. Um, but what you just said about like, if you don't get the music, you, you, you're you just going to do the research on your own. And that can give a good um, perspective some 
like it, it gives you a perspective that is not curated so much you know of course a, a home page or an instagram page or whatever is curated in a way but the internet has that kind of open thing where you can yeah. just be like yeah i'm drawn to this kind this cover you know right or, yeah um, mm -hmm. oh i know somebody who plays on that album i'm going yeah, to listen to that true. now and then this this has an open thing yeah mm -hmm. yeah or sometimes i'll just listen to my favorite um recording of the person you know like for this for this Derek bailey thing that we did with john zorn i was just going you know kind of going back and listening to all these yeah it's like this you know insane group of people getting together and um improvising together but what are we doing like we're we're supposed to be you know celebrating Derek bailey so let me let me go back and like maybe i'll go and listen to some songs some albums i've never checked out that much um, yeah so yeah one of my friends wendy eisenberg they showed me this record that i never had listened to before and i learned a lot just by doing that and kind of getting into the mindset of who Derek Bailey was and how I knew him to be, but also how, how I haven't known him to be, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it's true. I recently, um, sumped in the, in the NDR big band, the, the from Hamburg, the radio mm -hmm. big band. Yeah. And they were yeah. doing a tribute to Charlie Parker. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. So I was reading big band charts of songs that I actually know, trying to get it right, you know, yeah it was weird i mean it was great to play with them of course yeah. uh, and it's mm -hmm. always a nice opportunity but um after a while i was like no i'm not gonna listen to the sibelius of this chart anymore <laughs> to get it right i'm gonna listen yeah. to charlie parker who i always listen to you know I'm, I'm i'm gonna do that because it was a tribute to him i better listen to him than trying to get the chart of confirmation right you know what i mean you know yeah and totally. so much helped me to uh to approach that project where it was just a sub you know uh to approach it yeah more openly and i could make sense of the music even even more like that you know yeah yeah it gives you a different perspective for sure yeah definitely or even like w looking at ways that other people have interpreted Charlie Parker because there's so many interpretations of what he did um, and like analyzing of what he did and you know what does Barry Harris say about how Bird played or like you know there's just so many different ways to understand or or yeah what are those different ways of understanding that or what what is like Connie Carruthers say about the way in which Charlie Parker performed live like she's got stuff that she has said and you can find that on the internet who's that, you know? who's that? i haven't heard about that oh yeah connie Crothers. she's a piano player she was she passed away 2018 i believe and she was a pianist who studied very closely with lenny tristano not mm -hmm. to define her in terms of someone else but she had her own studio of students and also her own um, practice as a musician that was very helpful to many people around here in new york i didn't study with her but i definitely talked to a lot of people who did study with her and i learned a lot from her like you know sort of being being around when she was around and 
her energy was pretty special. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was one of Lenny's Lenny's students. She also like made this really great duo album with Max Roach mm. um, that everyone should listen to. And they, I think it's called Swish. Mm-hmm. And they also had a record label together, Max Roach and Connie Carruthers. Um, they owned a label and put yeah. out recordings. Actually, because I wanted to buy that record. And I was like, oh, how do I get this record? You couldn't find it anywhere. And then I found it on that website, her, the label. And then I emailed, like, how do I get this? It's kind of like an artist share thing where you can only get it there. So you have to yeah. pay them. And then they send you the record and it was her like she wrote me back oh wow okay <laughs> and it was like thank you for your thank you for inquiring like <laughs> you know just send this money here and i'll send you a copy of the record and i was like oh my god yeah. <laughs> this is so cool um but she's wow what a special special human being um to the music community and like beyond she was very 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 special what was her vibe in terms of teaching when uh You must have asked you the the people who studied with her like what was what was her principles or um her view on on teaching this music i think one beautiful thing about her is that she wasn't ever trying to get anyone to fit inside of any kind of mold of playing she would listen to you play this is what i've heard um and obviously people who studied with her know better than me but listen to you play and then try to like work with the elements that you already had inside of you um, and then work with those to hone them into a practice of whatever it was that you were trying to go for. Um, so if that means like, you know, playing standards and changes, whatever, it's that. If it means playing free, then there's that. If it means, you know, playing highly complex compositions, then it's that, you know, so she would kind of adjust her teaching style um, to whatever your needs would be. And I think as Lenny was, psychology was a big part of that, the Wilhelm Reich sort of school of thought of like pulling out these um, blocks, like dealing with the blocks inside of you and um, either, you know, shaping them or getting rid of them, like I don't, whatever you need, you know, everyone deals with blocks in a different way but working to um, understand the blocks or the pain inside of you, because if those are present, you're going to need to know them pretty well in order to improvise. Like in order to have mm-hmm. no fear, you're going to have to get to know those blocks, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? And so I, th- I think she was really, um, that was very central in her practice or I'm, I'm just sur- sort of surmising, even though I didn't personally know that, but yeah. I think that I mean, she did that really well in what I had heard from people who studied with her. And she was also like, you're going to study with me. You got to come, you know, once a week. Like it was very regular. Like she would take on students. People studied with her, you know, for eight years, 10 years, some students, you know, for a long time. It was very similar to, to Lenny. Yeah, that says something about someone. If people want to study with them for that amount of time. I mean, it's incredible. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I was really sad when she passed away. I think she had a cancer and she and it came back. I think that's what happened. So what kind of generation was she from? I mean, if she studied with Lenny, that still can be within a certain time frame. So how old was she when, oh, when was she born? 
Um, I think she was born, if I had to guess, maybe in the 50s, early 50s, or maybe later 40s. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, I feel like she was in her 60s when she died. Um, I really want to look that up. Yeah. 41. I was totally wrong. 41 to 2016. That's mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, she was young. She was seventy-five. Yeah, I still felt like I, I was like I still felt like oh man, he died too young for some reason. But she lived a life. Seventy-five. That's pretty. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. All right. Um. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, it was great. Awesome.